Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an <laughs> Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And <laughs> first things first, I have to say this, otherwise I'm gonna forget. But our Patreon is fixed, everybody. Find a fucking so get Girl, get your girl. Go over to patreon.com. Search for us freely because there is no nudity on this podcast. (laughs) No adult content, it turns out. Uh, That you all know of. That's right. What we do while we're recording is our business. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. We do record in a bedroom. We do. Could be scandalous. You never The door is usually closed. That's true. We got to crack because, you know, Dolly's going to make her way in. Every single any time. Mo. Yeah. You know. Is she in here already? No, she's out. She's uh, having a drink of water. Uh, she'll be back. She's parched. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am feeling so good this week. I can tell. Because last week was such a roller coaster for me. And like, okay, so let me set the scene for you. So we're recording on a Thursday. So last Tuesday... Tuesday before last. Like, not this past Tuesday, the Tuesday before that. Correct. Yes. Time is weird. So, my sister is in labor. My (laughs) older sister, my only sister, one of my very best friends. Yeah, that was a great transition, by the way. Thank you. She is in labor. We get the news. She's in labor. She's going to have a baby. So, I work a little bit late, and I'm like, you know what, Allison? Treat yourself get you some dinner to go, come home, wait for the delivery of your nephew. So then what does one do? I went to Chili's because of desperation and location. (laughs) And also generally I find their fajitas to be very desirable. They're fine. Yeah, they're fine. I mean, they're nothing compared to Old Town's uh quesadillas true that's true like nothing compares that's true nothing compares to you so get this get the to-go order get home consume some of the delicious fajitas delicious fajitas and then about an hour later i was like ray i don't feel good oh no things are happening in my body oh no i get food poisoning from chilies which is the most uncool thing i've ever said (laughs) in my whole life so my my nephew is being born i am experiencing food poisoning i love the only text messages i got from you that afternoon were hannah's in labor Mm -hmm. and banana or bananu bananas bananas in labor and um i i am sick yeah i am Food poisoning. It's happening. Yep. It's Lava. happening. <laughs> Bridesmaid situation. You're doing it. You're um, shitting in the street. Uh, and then I heard nothing from you for like three days. Yeah, it was rough. So I got everything out of my system. I was I was like being reborn. So Theodore was born on Tuesday night. Welcome and then to the I world. was reborn. <laughs> and then it took me three days or more to get over this because there was like nothing in my system. Days. I I felt so sad. Um, 
mind you, my bachelorette weekend is also planned for this very same weekend, which there's expectations. There's drinking and just like pigging out on food. And general merriment because we're all delightful and amazing so human beings. Delightful. So Friday morning I wake up and I'm like, get it together, Allison. Get it together. Giving yourself a pep talk. Oh, yeah. Like I, I was like, can I drive? Am I okay? Um, so I was supposed to be... I was supposed to be there at 3 p.m. I did not get there until 6 p.m. Which is so unlike you. Which really is. I tried to be on time. Thank you. But as soon as I got there, I felt so much better. So my beautiful, amazing friend, Valerie, (laughs) her parents have a fantastic lake house. Yeah. And they let us borrow it. And it was so fun. It was absolutely incredible. None of us wanted to leave. We wanted the weekend to last forever. Five ever. (laughs) It was so fun. Like, as soon as I got there, I was like, I'm fine. (laughs) I feel better. I'm fine. I know. You've been texting me that you were sick, and I show up, and you already had a white claw in hand. And I was like, cool. We're doing it. Everything's fine. Granted, I sipped on that for like like three hours. hours. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, and it was Friends-themed, so there was, like, Friends stuff everywhere, and my my very, my oldest friend in the whole world, Jack Wowza, came all the way from, Aww, Jack from New York City to be there, and uh, it was and just, like, we Zoom called time. the other part of your bridal party that could not be there, yeah. which was so much fun. Yeah. Banana did not participate, which will give her a pass because she just birthed a baby. Hashtag newborn. Um, But it was so, so fun. So we just kind of laid out and like there was a pinata for me and like we went in the pool and there was a graveyard in the backyard. Love it. We did not utilize the graveyard. We should have. You and I should have gone for a walk around the graveyard. Oh my God. We didn't go for a (gasps) walk in the graveyard. What a missed opportunity. I feel like we need to make it up. Uh, Hey, Valerie, if you could... Invite us all back so that Allie and I can go for a walk in your parents' graveyard. That's right. That's right. Kate just came with the property. I'm a little It's like an envious. added bonus. I know. I So I grew up in a house for a couple of years that had a graveyard right beside it. And I was never creeped out by it. Like, I always oh. thought it was really, you know. Like there's good energy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. People have different experiences with ghosts. Mm-hmm. Some good, some bad. Well, and we were talking about the ghost situation in the pool during the daytime. Mm-hmm. And then me and Shmaline decided we could never be alone in the house together. So, right. like, they went in to go to the bathroom, and I was like, I got you. I'm coming <laughs> too. <laughs> so, yeah. It was so fun. I love everybody. I, like, bridesmaid said it best. She's like, I have such a... St- stone cold pack of weirdos and i'm so proud like my bridal yeah. party is just like the island of misfit toys and i love all of you so much i petitioned to have our our name like so i hate bride tribe because you know indigenous uh-huh. people yep bridal party is passe uh-huh i vote island of misfit toys i i vote i vote it too 
It's hard because I was like bridal party, like because gender inclusivity. I wanted to make sure because I have there's people in my bridal party that are non-binary. So yeah. I was like, is bridal party? And then you were like, no, it refers to you. Like you are the bride. I am the bride. And yeah. I was like, okay, okay. You're a cis woman. I'm good. You she her pronouns. Yes, I do. So therefore, bridal party to describe your my party, party is fine. Correct. Yes. Yep. Though a bridesmaid would be a problem if your mm-hmm. person was non-binary or trans yep. or male. Yep. Um, yep. Which is why we don't say it. Right? Yeah. So I've got seven people on my side. We've got four in dresses, three in suits. It's going to be a great time. Oh, I'm Can't decide so how everybody's going to line up. We'll see. I know. We'll see. We've got time. We've got so much time. Time is on our side also we can change it like up until the day of i know that you won't because you really like knowing things in advance Uh but we could theoretically in theory you're right you're not wrong i love having that flexibility yeah zero calorie friends yep okay so while we were at your bachelorette party um i came down it must have been Saturday. Mm-hmm. And everyone was just kind of like waking up. And of course, I'm the last one awake because fuck because mornings. You're uh, like a mess in the mornings. Thanks. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> you, really you, yeah, you, but I look like death you. until <laughs> my second or third cup of coffee. Um, can't have a conversation. Don't mm-hmm. even try to. So, are you doing the history of coffee at some point? Because that would be a good tip. Oh, I'm sure I will. Cool. So anyways, um, we come downstairs and I just looked around and I think I was, the, I was definitely the newest person to this friend group. But oh my God, that's so weird because I've known you for like a decade. I know. Wow. I know. We'll process that. No new friends. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there were five of us in total, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, five of us. And... So I come downstairs and you're like hanging with your elementary, middle and high school best friends. Mm -hmm. And my heart is just so full seeing you around these people because we met in college. So Mm -hmm. I've never really seen you around, you know, your childhood friends. And it brought to mind this theory that I came up with. At least I hope I came up with it. Oh, gosh, at least 10 years ago, because that's when I told you about it. Mm hmm. And then we spent the rest of the morning talking about this theory. So now I'm going to share it with all of you. Oh. So the theory is that friendships are like calories. Mm -hmm. So you really want to have like high calorie, calorie dense, nutrition dense friends. Mm -hmm. You want to have friends that you invest in and they invest in you and they enrich your life and make you feel full and happy. And then you have some friends that are zero calorie friends. Like these are friends you might want to go out to the bar with or, you know, go to restaurants or hang out, but you don't tell them your deep, dark secrets because mm-hmm. they're not your high calorie friends. They're your zero calorie friends. Right. So they're it, not bringing enough to the table to give you the, the well, nutrients and support. And you don't bring enough to the table for them either. Like it's a friendship, but it's not like a best friendship. Mm-hmm. So it's more about like you need zero calorie friends sometimes when you've had a rough day and you can't spend the emotional labor to tell, you know, a very best friend about it. But you can spend, you know, time with a zero calorie friend Mm -hmm. and you don't have to bring it up. Sure. Sure. So and then you have 
negative calorie friends. Mm -hmm. And these are the friends that require more from you than they're giving you. Mm -hmm. And And you know exactly who... I was going to say, we all have these friends Uh too. And Everybody listening is like, oh, oh, that's what she is. Yeah, she's a negative calorie friend. Mm -hmm. They are the friends who call you up and tell you every problem that they have, but never call you up to see how you're doing. Mm -hmm. Or you go out and you feel more drained after hanging out with them, and it's not just because you're an introvert, even though you might be. Even though you probably are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's because they've given you a lot without or they've taken a lot from you without giving you much in return. Mm -hmm. So that's my theory on calories and friendship. And it has served me so well over the years. It's a good reflection tool to say, you know, why am I feeling this way? Is it because the other person is draining me? Like, that's really what it comes down to is like, how do other people make you feel when you're supporting them yeah is it one-sided is it a two-way street yeah and i think you know those those questions change depending on when in a friendship you are you know if you've known somebody for 20 years you might have gone through various stages of of negative zero calorie yeah content um but it's definitely such a good reflective tool and i've used it like for the past 10 years i know me too and I think one of the things I appreciate the most about it and really good friendships is that when I don't have any calories to give, but I have a high calorie friendship, like with ours, Mm -hmm. um, if I show up one day and have zero spoons and cannot give you any of my energy, I'll know that our friendship has been so sustained by these high calorie conversations and experiences that we've had that it's okay for me to sometimes show up and just say, I need you. Oh, for sure. Um, What's not okay is for someone to show up and say, I need you when you have nothing, like you've put no calories into the friendship to begin with. Yep. Absolutely. We also agreed that we weren't allowed to freak out at the same time. Yeah. That's been a (laughs) great rule Specifically related to the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that has served us so well so far. We have really stuck to that. You know, it's been... Uh, what month is this? August? Mm-hmm. We've been recording and like planning for this podcast for eight months now. Whoa! <laughs> We're coming up on six months. Uh, like, I think this episode will be our 30th episode, including cults. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Love it. Wow. Wow. We're past the halfway mark for the year. I'm not ready. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, speaking of the podcast and while while why we're here today should we talk about some psychology and history i mean i suppose i guess right i guess is that what we're here for be appreciative all right what psychology topic are we talking about well if you'll remember uh i'm doing a three-part series yes my very first i'm so super excited um, so welcome to part two of our trauma and fear response yes, series. Trauma and fear response series. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought that we get so excited talking about trauma? I know. I mean, I literally went to school for this, so right. I get excited yeah. most of the time. Totes in your element. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So last week we got into the hand brain model, a little refresh sesh. Recap. That's what I'm calling this, oh, except cute. that... 
S's are hard for me. Hashtag, I have a lisp. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we got into the handbrake model. So reminder, this was developed by Dr. Dan Siegel. When you make a fist, um, you're going to start by making a fist with your thumb tucked inside. So your four fingers should be over your your thumb. Mm -hmm. Your fist represents your brain. From here, your fingertips and knuckles represent your cortex, including your prefrontal cortex, which is where we think and learn. Opening your fist to like holding up the number four, Mm -hmm. we have your thumb. And your thumb represents the amygdala, which is about or which is in charge of emotions. There we also have the hippocampus, which is where we store our long-term memory. Yeah, because you would remember if you saw a hippo on campus. (laughs) I love that memory jogger. That's fantastic. Thank you. I did not make it up. (laughs) (laughs) It's great, though. So we have the hippocampus, which stores our long-term memory, because you would remember if there was a hippo on campus. Mm -hmm. Totally using that. Um, And then we have the brainstem, which controls all of our like automatic bodily responses. Mm-hmm. So systematic. Hydromatic. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this controls your heart rate, it controls your breathing, um, blood flow, like all of the different things that we don't think about, but that just kind of happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we are calm and our learning brain is functioning, then our frontal cortex is running. Um the show but when we experience a big emotion like a trauma trigger we flip our lid and that's when your fingers come up and your amygdala is out and firing and your hippocampus is functioning fully it reminds me of when you're in when they're in jurassic park in the the first movie and the little like like oh yeah yeah. the dinosaur goes yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) we're doing hand motions over here but you know what i'm talking about then he sprays the acid Uh uh-huh uh-huh that's what i think of when you flip your lid we should really start recording ourselves while we're recording (laughs) just the i got big arms i got a big head and little arms arms. okay um so we flip our lid it's hard to think clearly we can't problem solve and our brain goes into survival mode Mm mm-hmm Okay, so now we're going to talk more about fight, flight, and freeze, which are our body's responses to danger, real or perceived. I've given this um, metaphor before, but we're going to use it again because I think it's really important. So imagine you're standing in the middle of the road and an 18-wheeler is coming at you. Mm -hmm. Like your heart rate goes up, your breathing quickens because your body's like preparing for what do we need to do. Oh my God. Now imagine that multiple 18-wheelers are coming at you from multiple directions and you're standing on a bridge. So there's (gasps) no way for you to get away from Mm -hmm. the 18-wheelers. This is trauma. This is literally a, a metaphor for, so it's not literal. This is a metaphor for how our brains process and understand trauma. Hopefully you're able to find safety, but even once you're eventually removed from this terrifying place, the sound of something that reminds you of an 18-wheeler or the smell of something that reminds you of an 18-wheeler might take you back to that place mentally where you're standing in the middle of the road Mm -hmm. and you can't tell if the 18-wheeler coming at you is real or perceived. Mm Mm-hmm. I've heard it best described as there are pieces of your brain that don't process or understand time. So when we're experiencing a trauma response, it isn't reacting to the trauma 
that happened, you know, five, 10, or even 20 years ago, your brainstem and amygdala are responding to trauma as though it's happening right this second. Right. So it's not like your logical brain is able to say, oh, we're not in any danger because there's no actual 18-wheeler. Your brain immediately takes you back to the last time that there was an 18-wheeler. Right. And the reason for that is the hippocampus. (gasps) The hippocampus. Because when the amygdala, which is your like barking dog situation, it's your alarm system. Your thumb. Yeah, it's your thumb. When it starts to say, wait a second, something feels wrong here. You go into your hippocampus and it's like pulling forth all these memories Mm -hmm. and it's like, wait a second, the last time we felt this, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. So that's what is happening in trauma brain. Your body is self-diagnosing itself. Oh, yeah. Great way to phrase that. Um, But this is the reason that trauma also compounds and the triggers compound. Fear is conditioned in you, so you've learned to associate a situation or a thing with negative experiences, and your psychological responses develop over time. Mm -hmm. So when you experience that perceived threat again, your brain thinks you're in danger because it already has considered that situation to be Mm life-threatening. Got it? Got it. Hate it. Love it. (laughs) So how do we know we're going into trauma brain? Like, when the amygdala sounds the alarm... And our hippocampus is getting activated and it's like, wait a second, we remember this thing that happened this one time and this is terrifying. So our brainstem, what does it do? Um, Your heart rate might go up. And that's a big one for me. Like my heart starts to race really quickly when I have anxiety. Yep. Um, Sometimes you might feel like a stabbing pain in your gut because Mm. your digestive system is like, okay, what nutrients do we have to process? Mm. Um, your breathing may speed up and deliver more oxygen to your blood. Does that go with the nervous poops back to the stomach? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, we need to, you know, prepare for whatever's and, like, coming process. It's like overcompensating a little for bit. sure. Yeah. Sorry. My foot's asleep, which is not a trauma response. My foot's just asleep. <laughs> it's just how we record sitting on the floor. We're so <laughs> professional. Um, you're, Oh, I already said breathing. Okay. Your blood may even thicken. This is the one oh. that I had not heard of. Hashtag I mean, coagulation? For sure. Yeah. Really? So your blood thickens, which increases your clotting factors, which prepares your body for injury. <gasps> oh, Isn't wow. that cool? Whoa. Our brains and bodies are like designed to protect us and save us at any cost. Sure. Um, we might start having flashbacks or negative memories as our brain like scans through every long-term memory it can for danger and negative outcomes. Um, sometimes your skin might feel warm and sweaty because your heart's increasing. Um, one for me specifically, when I like feel my brain and body like switching mm-hmm. into this trauma response mode is I get really itchy. Like oh. I'll start scratching my arms or scratching my chest or like fiddling with my fingers or something because like I get really fidgety and antsy. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that I'm actually itchy as much as I'm just scratching because I can't sit still. Sure. I have to fidget. I get really blotchy. Yeah, I've noticed that. I'm a blotchy that. bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially your cheeks will get a little pink. Oh, yeah. I can't lie or be nervous. I just like externalize it in my skin. Yeah. It's, just. I Yeah. Yeah. Not a good zombie apocalypse. <laughs> You've got situation. the charisma. I got the charisma. 
Um, so in thinking about the ways that brains and trauma work today, so last week we talked about the Hulk and flight or fight response. Fight. Yeah. This week we are talking about one of the most popular current Disney princesses of the last decade and her flight response. <gasps> We're talking about Queen Elsa. Yes, we are. So a little background, Frozen came out in 2013 and was inspired by Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Snow Queen. Um, I never knew that. Really? No, honestly, girl, I've seen Frozen once. I, so Frozen, I like. Frozen 2, I love. Mm, Okay. Frozen 2, I think Olaf is the voice that I need. So Mm. for a whole week now, or however long it's been since we last recorded, and I did the Hulk, and I was feeling so good about, like, having this perfect example of fight response. Mm -hmm. I was like, who am I going to do for flight? So the other day, I was like, I'm feeling really anxious. I need a comfort movie. And Frozen 2 is a comfort movie because Olaf just speaks to me. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point, he's sitting there, and he's, like, playing with some kids. And Anna comes up and asks him what he's doing. And he's like, this is called controlling what we can control. <laughs> I <was laughs> oh, like, I love that. Yeah, that's just where I was yesterday. Yeah. Was this is, I am controlling what I can control right now. Um, so all of that to go back to Hans Christian Andersen, who wrote The Snow Queen, which um, I have read. It's been a very long time. but Shouldn't have left you without that dope beat to step to. Step two. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Keep going. <laughs> Please don't stop. Um, so the Snow Queen is a whole other conversation for another day. Basically, there are no men in the Snow Queen. So it's hmm. all all women, which is kind of a fun fact. Disney put in men to make it, you know, Disney. Marketable. Yeah. Sure. So I love this mo- movie not only because it's queer coded, like in Frozen Two, they kind of queer code Elsa as being gay mm-hmm. or lesbian. Um, it's a deconstruction of like the typical Disney princess tropes and genre. It's not about true love; it's about familial love. Um, there's also a potential argument to be made around disability, mm. unlike uh, Elsa being autistic and being encouraged to hide that from society. Again, none of this is actually what we're talking about today. I just wanted to share some background. Interesting. Yeah. So everyone basically knows the plot to the story, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the plot, and instead we're going to talk about... Are we talking about Frozen 1? Yes, Frozen okay. 1. Thank you for the clarification. Thank you. So basically, we have two sisters. One has magical powers. After a traumatic event, her parents lock Elsa away, and we'll talk about attachment issues later. Mm-hmm. Um... Fast forward, Elsa and her little sister Anna have almost no relationship. Her parents die unexpectedly. Mm. She continues to be locked away and is like trying to keep her magic powers in check, but is terrified of them, scared of herself, doesn't really know what to do. Um, three years into the future, she's supposed to become Queen of Arendelle. It's funny because I remember literally none of that from watching it. I remember they, they build a snowman. Uh-huh. Or one of them wants to build a snowman, ask the other one if they want to build a snowman. Do you want to build a snowman? That's the song, yes. And I'm familiar. I remember there's gloves. 
Elsa has gloves. She has a glove peel. So eventually Uh she takes them off. Very burlesque of her. Yes. And then there's uh, people completing each other's sandwiches. That's literally all I remember. So you remember the first eighth of the movie. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to be talking about the second, fourth, and sixth eighths of the movie. Gotcha. Yeah. Spin me a tail. (laughs) The do you want to build a snowman? Let's Mm. start there. Perfect. A very good place to start. Elsa and Anna are best friends as kids. Yeah. And they go off and, like, sneak out of their rooms at night to build a snowman. And um, they're playing because Elsa has these cool magical powers so they can build snowmen inside the buildings. She can freeze water droplets, basically. And um, Anna is, like, running, and Elsa accidentally hits her with a blast of ice that Mm -hmm. was intended to be, like, a safe place for Anna to step. So she has this really well-intentioned deed that ends up almost killing her sister. No good deed goes unpunished. That's all I think about when I watch this movie. (laughs) Um, Elsa and Elphaba have so much in common. Well, they are the same person. (laughs) It's a very similar trope. So that's what gets Elsa locked in her room and, like, away from everybody is she almost killed Anna. Her Uh, parents are afraid of her. She's afraid of herself and her strength. Oh, poor baby. Anna has no idea. Like, Anna doesn't remember this night, doesn't remember the trauma. So Anna doesn't even remember that Elsa has magical powers. Oh. So fast forward, parents are dead, and um, it's coronation day. Okay. So coronation day comes, and she is, like, just doing her best to keep her shit together. Mm -hmm. Like, you can tell she's got her gloves on. She has not done the glove peel yet. Oh, I see. Um, But the gloves help her, like, control her magic. So she knows that any strong emotion she experiences causes her to freeze things. Mm -hmm. Like, freeze the water droplets. It's really ironic that we aren't doing frozen for the freeze response. We're doing it for the flight response. There's a good reason. But also, (laughs) isn't it ironic? (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) It's like a frozen coronation on your coronation day. (laughs) Mm. Okay. So the way that Elsa tries to keep her shit together reminds me a lot of a person who has complex PTSD or PTSD and who is experiencing elongated exposure to their triggers and is like trying to stay present. She's using all of her coping skills. She's like trying to keep a steady voice and she is like remembering to breathe and she is standing close to the only person in the entire world that she has any connection with her sister yeah even though that connection is like 10 strenuous tenuous hanging on by a thread hanging on by a thread um so anna goes off and like in the matter of 10 minutes falls in love with this person comes back and tells elsa she wants to get married And Elsa begins to become overwhelmed. Yeah. So she's already got trauma. She already isn't feeling connected to anybody. And now she's becoming anxious and overwhelmed. You know what she needs to do? What? Let it go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm embarrassed that I did not see that coming. Um, That's all I got, though. (laughs) That's all I got. That's all you need, really. So she's trying to be logical until her sister points out, quote, 
all you know how to do is shut people out. Mm. So part of this is her own experiences with her flight response. Like, flight is not just about leaving a space, even though usually it is. It's also about, like, keeping away from other people emotionally and physically. Yeah. So Elsa immediately shuts down and, um, like, looks like she's about to collapse into freeze mode. Mm-hmm. The freeze trauma response. But then you see, like, even in cartoon form, her lid fully flip. and yeah. does the dinosaur thing. And she lashes out with ice, and it becomes very apparent that she can no longer control her emotions and responses, and she flees. We can also see how closely all these trauma responses are related. Like, she literally experiences all three in a matter of, like, five seconds on sure. film. I get that. Yeah. I totally get that. So everyone who sees her responses immediately reinforces her fears. They're, they start calling her a monster. They uh, basically, like, chase her away. She already innately feels she's unworthy of love and belonging. And this is just, like, reinforcing all of that internalized messaging that she's had over the course of her life. The only person who's trying to connect with her is her sister, whom she's afraid of because she's already, like, accidentally almost killed her before. Right. So she doesn't want her sister, who she loves more than anyone, to even be close to her. Mm, That's so tough. Right? There's so much to unpack in kids' movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's Uh, always a parental death. Always. Especially in Disney. Yeah. Can you name a Disney princess who has both of their parents? Yeah. I cannot. Sure can't. Nope. (laughs) So generally speaking, we we see this with people as they are fleeing. Fleeing is about survival. You're getting away. You're retreating. Sometimes it means that you're giving up on whatever task it is that you're working on. It's also a response if you're afraid of hurting others, so you push others away. Elsa, in her most famous song, says, um, I don't care what they're going to say, dot, dot, dot. The cold never bothered me anyway. The fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. So she is, like, creating a complete separation. Mm-hmm. She is convincing herself that she is better off alone, that um, she doesn't need anybody, and that if she's on her own, then she doesn't have anything to be afraid of anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, flight is all about the sympathetic nervous system, which specifically focuses on anxiety, fear, panic, um, avoidance, chronic worry, and even perfectionism. All of which we see in Elsa and in ourselves sometimes. Fight, in comparison, like thinking about the Hulk, is more about irritability, anger, aggression, and moving towards the thing that you perceive as as danger. Sure. Flight is about hiding out and refusing to engage in activities or connections. Mm. So does... Are we driving still? Oh, for sure. I'm thinking, and you might get to this, but I'm thinking about these two examples, or ju- let's just focus on flight. Elsa? Uh-huh. Like, you're fleeing in either examples where you're physically in danger or you feel emotionally, like, in danger. Oh, absolutely. Fleeing physically is like, gotta go. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, emotionally is like when you feel embarrassed Mm -hmm. or you feel um, overwhelmed and you just, like, need to remove yourself for for a minute. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it's interesting because... You know, Elsa, as an example, is, like, encompassing both. Yeah. Yeah. She's experiencing 
a lot of lifelong trauma that is impacting her ability to feel safe physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Um, and it's a great example. Thank you. So she sees fleeing as being free and safe, mm-hmm. which is like the goal is to be away from people that you don't perceive as safe and to feel free and to not feel judged or, you know, whatever else yep, might be causing away. you psychological harm. Um, and she feels like she's harnessing her own power. Like, let it go is supposed to be an anthem of I'm no longer being held by societal norms and constraints. I'm doing my own thing now. And like, to be honest, good for her. Like, I feel like she feels strong and powerful in that moment. Um, But her mistake here and the struggle with the flight response is that she still doesn't feel worthy or deserving of connection. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's continuing to push people away. And we're kind of splitting some hairs here because, like, the fight and flight response is most frequently researched together. And I'm beginning to touch on a little bit of attachment theory, Mm -hmm. which is not really what this is about. But attachment is the solution. So it's interesting that she's moving away from what feels threatening, like her sister, her responsibilities, the kingdom, and she's preoccupying herself with building her own castle. And she's like, I don't need them. I'm going to do me. Mm-hmm. And this is prime flight behavior. Yep. So just like what we saw with the Hulk, what brings Elsa back? Like what helps her re-engage her frontal cortex, make rational decisions, you know, get out of this uh, survival mode and back into, like, a fully functioning, thoughtful um, ability to connect is attachment. Elsa continues to remain optimistic and believe that her sister can heal and that if they can just, you know, see each other, Mm -hmm. then maybe Elsa will be able to, like, calm down. Yeah. Elsa continues to be triggered by her sister and like her decisions and actions continue compounding, which is making things worse for survival brain. Cause what we know about survival brain is that survival brain wants to stay in survival brain. It does not want to go back up into functioning brain because it doesn't trust functioning brain or learning brain. So once she finds out her sister is in danger um, and Anna or and Anna risks her own life to save Elsa, their connection is, like, solidified. So Anna sacrifices herself for Elsa, and Elsa is able to just breathe for a second. Mm -hmm. And she is able to realize that there is a person that she feels truly safe with, that even after she's been pushed away, even after she's fled, um, Anna still is there and still loves her. So love is what brings Elsa back to herself, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful story. Um, I love love. I love love for her. I do too, and I love the sibling love and not yeah. true love's kiss Ugh, that brings anyone I'm over back. It. The true love's kiss thing, you know. Ugh. I'm mad at Disney. Oh, for been sure. Mad. They set like really unrealistic expectations. Yeah. Where's my princess in shining armor? That's a great question. Thank She's you. locked in a tower somewhere. You gotta go get her. Oh, seems like so much work. Have you seen that commercial where it's like Rapunzel's in her tower and then she's like 
I think it's an Amazon commercial, maybe not, or an Etsy commercial or something. And it's like, basically Rapunzel realizes that she doesn't need anybody to save her. And then she like starts her own like hair and weave company. (laughs) I love that. Do you remember the Cheetah Girls song? Cinderella? I don't want to be like Cinderella. Sitting in a dark, cold, dusty cellar. Waiting waiting for somebody somebody to come and set me free. Yes, girl. Raven Simone, am I right? (laughs) Oh, for sure. Um, For sure. So this is a little bit more complicated. I'm sorry. For those of you who went down that whole wormhole with us, I apologize for that song now being stuck in your head for the rest of your life. But... We were just talking about um, love is what brings Elsa back to herself. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit more complicated in real life than they make it in the movie. Obvs. Like, people don't have this immediate moment of, oh my god, my sister, like, just saved my life. And I now feel so connected again. Yeah. Brains don't heal that quickly. It takes repeated and consistent and ongoing support and love and acceptance and understanding to really start to rewire these brains. Um, Which in foster care and adoption, a lot of time we talk about families who think that love is the answer to bringing, you know, a kid who has behavior issues, especially kids who flee and fight into their home. Like if we just love them enough, then it will heal them. Mm. Love is great. But care is what heals people. Hmm. Um, I think the act of loving someone is important, but commitment and care is what helps rewire brains. Yeah. So anyways, um, I was also thinking about, and this is a piece where I'm going to need you to help me like process and like suss this out a little bit. Oh, I got you. So I'm thinking about refugees because in our fight episode we talked a little bit about black lives matter Mm -hmm. and the anger that comes with being marginalized Mm -hmm. as a group of people for so long but now i want to talk about refugees because i think it's important to put this in a global context especially with everything that's been going on in afghanistan Mm -hmm. and palestine um so refugees are literally having to flee their home Mm -hmm. and um, it's not often a choice. Like, it's a exactly. literal survival response. Yes. So, we know that um, because it's a cognizant decision to flee their home, the trauma not only comes from their early experiences of whatever is happening in their homes, but also from fleeing. Like, fleeing creates trauma. Mm-hmm. So what do we need to promote safety? Because as much as, you know, I can say that I want to support refugees, how can I actually do that? Um, And I think the answer is care and safety. It's figuring out how to have a safe place for them to one day return to. Because what I have heard from refugees is that they don't intend to stay in the place that they have fled to. They eventually want to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to make sure that we are supporting their ability to go home and to be in a safer environment than when they left. They need people to return to. So um, in thinking about 
uh, I think it was the Congo. Um, in the Congo, a, a program called Mobility Mapping came mm-hmm. out of the Congo. There was a, a massive war, and people were trying to help reunite children with their families, and they do that through figuring out who they're connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to know that when you return home, or even while you're here, can we connect you to people who will understand? So similar to how Elsa needed Anna, even though you know they were, she was fleeing from Anna, mm-hmm. we know that that connection is still really valuable. Um, they also need felt and psychological safety in the meantime. So while refugees are you know, away from their home, how can we provide them with that safety, physical safety and psychological safety? Oh, I feel like as Americans, people find it very difficult to be able to put themselves in any type of situation where they would align those feelings with somebody who's fleeing another country. Yeah. And I, a couple episodes ago, we were referencing dystopian societies. And mm-hmm. that, those are like the only examples that Americans can even like rationalize. It's like yeah. not even real. It's like yeah. fake well, and trauma. Because we are so fucking privileged. Absolutely. Like, we have never had... I mean, we had the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Are the only... I mean, there are other wars that have been fought on American soil. But the last big one that was on American soil was the Civil War. Yeah. Um, and Americans have done atrocious things. Like, unthinkable, yep. unimaginable, unimaginable things. Um, my brother actually made a really good point. I think it's because Europe is so contained that it's almost easier for us to go to them and fight on their land than it is for them to come to us and fight on ours because we have, you know, big bodies of water on either side of us. Whereas Europe only has a body of water on one side. Mm -hmm. Same with Asia. Like, you know, it's just... Well, they've got the north. Yeah, but no one goes... North I mean, you're right. Nobody goes there. <laughs> um, but I read an incredible book. It's actually a YA book. It's a young adult book um, called, I think YA. it's called. I love the lingo. Thank YA. you. YA. I think it's called Refugee. Okay. And it takes place over three timelines. Mm-hmm. So the first is um, a Jewish family escaping Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. The second is a Cuban family escaping from Cuba mm-hmm. and the third I believe is an Afghani family mm-hmm. uh, fleeing the Taliban mm-hmm. which I have chills thinking about how relevant again this oh, is Jesus, yeah. but this book was powerful and well written and all three of the main characters are children mm. I think they're all like 12 to 14 years old and they're telling it from a first person perspective yeah. so these are my experiences with my family and it's all based on true stories yeah so I think that you're right. Refugees are not a group of people that historically Americans have been very friendly to. Honestly, around the world, it's not a group of people that have, you know, been warmly accepted. Yeah. Um, but I think it's from a lack of empathy and understanding about trauma and Absolutely. about the needs of people. It's about people being unwilling or unable to put themselves in other people's shoes. Absolutely it is. Setting aside the privilege and your own experiences to even 
consider thinking about how somebody else might be feeling. Yeah. I mean, when you think about a war happening in your home, town, or country, you don't have a ton of options. Like, it's fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. It's fight, it's fleece, or uh, fight, flight, so it's you know, leaving and finding safety, especially for your family, um, or it's freeze, like hunker down and just, you know, pray that you get through it. Mm -hmm. But I don't understand how we expect people who are experiencing this kind of trauma to just be okay. Oh, agreed. So um, I think that we just need to give so much grace and support and so what I would really love for this episode is maybe we could share a resource like, I know that we can't link things because the link would have to, like, be in our bio, and that makes it a little difficult and tricky for people to navigate. But at least we can share information um, and, like, point people in the right direction. Because we don't have all the answers. And oh, I want to make no, sure that people not. are, you know, educating themselves. Absolutely. Got it. Okay, this got really heavy, especially considering that we were just talking about Disney Princess. <laughs> yeah. Um, not that trauma is ever a light subject, no. but thank you for going on that ride with me. I'm here for it. Would I am you? here for the truth. And again, we are all connected, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we keep finding out more and more with this podcast. Yeah. Would you like to take a quick break and like breathe for a second so that we can move on to your topic? Oh, are you done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do that. Let's take a quick break and we will come back with a history topic. <laughs> I can't wait. We are back. <laughs> I love that I said it and you still repeated it. I what this do you is want our me whole to do? Friendship. <laughs> That's right. I won't repeat it next time. No, you're welcome to repeat it always. I want you to feel special. I do. You let me say it first. You're a very special human. Transitions. Who else is a special human? <laughs> <laughs> Can we please start organizing all of our transitions this way? We are going to be talking about john lennon so just like get your mind right we're gonna okay. switch gears like a hundred percent yeah you know it takes me a second yeah so like put your mind into some psychedelic shit so imagine there's no heaven paper cups lucy in the sky oh yeah with diamonds overflowing strawberries fields forever Ooh. and we are all in a yellow submarine amen all right, so John Lennon was born October 9th, 1940, in Liverpool. Does that make him a Libra? I don't know. Uh, it's unclear at this time. If not, can you take that out for us, Jacob? <laughs> <laughs> My sister's an October baby, but I still don't know. Well, God, that's terrible. I think beginning of October is Libra and is Scorpio. Hmm. Continue. <laughs> um, his parents separated when his father ran off for like long periods of time. He was kind of 
absent. And his father would send money home every month. However, one day he stopped sending money. Oh, no. I know. And six months after he stopped sending the money, um, he did finally come home. However, at this point, his mother had already become pregnant with another man's baby. Oh, scandal. My dear. I do declare. Another man's child, you say. Another man's child. So... In an article I read, it did describe kind of like a traumatic experience between John and his um, and his dad. Um, basically, the article said that John was being forced to choose between his parents, and his dad had taken him to the airport with the intention of taking him away to New Zealand, and um, there was this like super traumatic experience where. They were like, okay, you have to choose now, like between his parents. That's so sad. I know. Um, Question. Did we talk birth order? So he's one of six. So those are both like full and half siblings. But I don't know in which order he was born. If you know, let us know. Send us an email. Podwithoutanodagmail.com. So he did end up choosing his mother. Ooh. However, he was mostly raised by his mother's sister, so by his own aunt. So from what it sounds like to me, he was experiencing guilt. And I think he wanted to go with his dad, maybe. And then, you know, like there's the whole mom thing and... um, his mom ended up being a little bit absent. Like I said, again, he was raised by his aunt. It sounds like both of his parents were pretty absent. Yeah. Yeah. Physically and emotionally. Poor baby. And we'll kind of see that throughout the narrative here. Like he he tries, he holds on to relationships. And that's why he's so interested in, in the music and the band and the brotherhood and then his mm-hmm. future relationships as well. And then his own children. Yeah. So, John and his mother, Julia, developed a relationship as he grew up. So, they weren't very close when he was younger. Um, she became kind of like a cool aunt figure, even though he was she was his, his biological mother. Um, and she was the one to buy him his very first guitar. Aw. Okay, one point for mom. Two points for Gryffindor. Um, his aunt, however, which was the woman that raised him, she wasn't very supportive of the whole music career thing. Um, and she believed that he wouldn't be able to make enough money to support himself doing that. At just 15, John Lennon created his first band called The Quarrymen. And it was named after his high school, which is like the most high school band thing I can think <laughs> of, right? <laughs> um and at the Quarrymen's second performance, John met a young man named Paul McCartney. You don't say. You don't say. And John asked Paul to join the group. You know, how cute that they met in high school. Yeah. And we just, you know, celebrated your wedding with your high school friends. That's right. Also, like casually in conversation, do you remember we were on the porch and jesse mccartney came on and i was like that's oh, paul shit. mccartney's son <laughs> and jack and jack wowza was like 
No. No. <laughs> Definitely not. not. He, like, Googled it really quick. And it was, like, one of those things that I had heard, well, like, years ago, and I just, like, clung on to it. Also, I think his actual son's name is James, and Jesse is short for James. Mm. So I think you were on the right track. Whoa. The train just got derailed DNA, at some point. DNA, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um... He is, and, and somebody was like, he's so American, though. Like, he could never be Paul McCartney's son. <laughs> Which is true. It's absolutely true. Oh. But I don't want another pretty face. I don't want another hand to hold. I don't want, I want my love to go to waste. I just want you. And your beautiful soul. This is going to be the musical episode of <laughs> Pod some, Without an Odd. It's some Paul McCartney shit, but apparently not. I feel like every tv show needs a musical episode i love musical episodes unpopular opinion oh, everyone no, no. else hates them but they're That's great. a very popular opinion on this podcast <laughs> uh this is the musical episode of pod without nod no, no that would be i haven't sang once uh no but we have referenced how many songs in this episode have i sang we have, have we not sang? though the episode is not over no lord have mercy there will be by god there will be dancing do you remember when um Jacob said that he was going to quit as our editor if uh, we asked him to take out you singing. Oh, I believe in a thing called love. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to lose him. I love him with my whole whole heart. Whole body. Mind, body, and soul. Okay. Notes are hard. So, <laughs> so Paul McCartney was not loved so much by John's family. And the general feeling was that Paul was kind of like lower class and that he would kind of get John into trouble. So they were not very encouraging of him hanging out or them hanging out together. Uh, John's biological mother was hit by a car and killed as she was walking home on July 15th, 1958. Oh, how tragic. He would have only been like 18. Yeah. And this really, really traumatized John, who was a teenager, as you said, and at the time, it sent him into, you know, a spiral. Yeah. He was, he was not okay after that. Um, and he did begin uh, drinking heavily and experimenting with drugs during this time period. After this tragic accident, John immersed himself in his music. So he dove head in. That was his coping mechanism for sure, his creative outlet. Um, and the original band that they had developed went to Germany for a residency the quarries? Yeah, the quarrymen. The quarrymen. The quarrymen. I was close. You were super close. Thank super you. Super deep close. Um, and they, uh, during the residency, they tried out various, like, third and fourth members, kind of trying to see, like, who was going to really fit in the band. And finally, in the early 1960s, we have the lineup that would become the most iconic band in history. We have John Lennon, Paul McCartney. George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. I'm here for all of it. All of it. And so, matching haircuts. Yeah. That was a thing of the early days. Yeah. 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 You got to be matchy. I'm a I big think fan of the matching haircuts, honestly. Bands go through various matching faces. Do you remember in the 90s where you would have to wear, like everybody would have like a denim outfit of various lengths and sleeve lengths? Uh uh backstreet boys yeah yep or like um the only people who did not fall into that trope spice girls 
they never did the matchy matchy. Like That's they were true. each their own person through the entire time that they were around. True. Speaking of nineties, I just saw Candies. Um, when you're out in the club, don't think I'm not. I was thinking, I want candy. No, 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 no. This is like candy, candy. Okay. She just had her 21st anniversary of that song. I was like, oh my holy God. shit! How old oh. are we? We're old. What's happening? I feel old. I've been feeling ill. I got like I didn't even talk about the crick in my neck. <laughs> <laughs> we are all over the yeah, place today. I, I am not okay. Um, so the band recorded their debut album, Please Please Me, in under 10 hours on February 11th, 1963. Girl, which is like, girl. that's like not long at all. No, that's so quick. Very, super quick. Um, and during the same year, the band hit its first mainstream success. Um, the band appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show which solidified them as a legit music sensation. Five share. Five share. So they toured for about two years. um, And John even wrote two books during this time. Bestsellers, maybe. Good for him. Yeah. The band began to fear that the integrity of their music was suffering at live shows because it was hard to hear the band play over the screaming crowd. I mean, you've seen those, like, Beatles. Oh, how hard that like, must be for them. I know. Oh, so validating. But, yeah, they, like, you've seen the videos where yeah. it's, like, the screaming crowds and stuff. Um, John wrote Help, the song. I Need Somebody. Uh-huh. And he said, quote, I mean it. It was me singing Help, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, in an interview, John tells a story about being at a dinner party. And this is kind of when, like, they're becoming, like, these really big stars. So they're, like, being invited places. And at this dinner party, he was there with a dentist. And the dentist, like, an actual medical professional, spiked their coffee with LSD. Huh. That hmm. doesn't seem very professional. Nope. Or, you know, or consensual. <laughs> Um, and so when John and George wanted to leave, the dentist was like, that's a really bad idea. And later he recalls feeling like the taxi they were in was on fire. Hmm. Which is terrifying. I mean, given that they wrote about the yellow, is the taxi the yellow submarine? Because taxis are yellow. Oh, I don't know. Ringo wasn't in the car though. So I don't know. He sang that one. I don't know how anyone keeps up with who sang what and who wrote what. I'm just so bad at that. Well, Ringo sang Yellow Submarine, and that's like it. Okay. Got it. That one I can <laughs> probably remember, though. Yeah, it's tough, though. <laughs> but at this point, they are like public figures. They're influencing fashion. They had thoughts on religion, education, feminism, and the whole world was listening. Everybody was on their edge of their seat trying to figure out, uh, you know, what these guys were doing. They were just, like, the biggest pop stars anybody had ever seen. Yeah. Very influential. In 1966, during an interview with The Evening Standard with the reporter Maureen Cleave, John Lennon says, quote, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Oh, End quote. great question. Which is like, you know, a statement. Yeah. TBD. TBD. 
The comment went uh, virtually unnoticed in England, but caught great attention in the U.S. Hashtag Bible Typical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it was quoted by magazines months after he had originally said it. So there kind of began to be like a counter or basically like a protest against the Beatles after the statement was, was made. Religious organizations were burning Beatles albums, records, just like out of protest. So people were pissed. People were pissed. The KKK, uh, you know, spoke threats against John Lennon specifically. And ultimately, the backlash against the statement was one of the reasons that contributed to the band's decision to stop touring at this time. I'm guessing this is going to have future repercussions, though. Oh, for sure. We will get we will get there. We'll cross okay. that bridge. Okay. And over the next few years, the bands did spend tons of time making these mega hits and albums, including the Magical Mystery Tour, which was November 1967. The Beatles, the White Album in November 1968. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yellow Submarine. I'm familiar. And Abbey Road, both in 1969. I think Abbey Road's the best one. Yeah, that's the most popular. Yeah. They're walking across the street. Yep. At literally Abbey Road. Literally. Um, so during this time, he did divorce his first wife. Her name was Cynthia Powell in 1968, and he did marry Yoko Ono in 1969. A great name. Oh, for sure. She's iconic. Yeah, for sure. At this time, John's drug use was increasing to an all-time high and the band began disagreeing about the direction of the band john began bringing yoko to recording sessions which broke the agreement that they had established which was not to allow any wives or girlfriends in the recording sessions it's a great rule i i get it i totally i really get it like creative spaces i always think it's weird when people bring their partners to stuff they have no business coming to yeah i think it's a control thing could or also maybe be a codependency thing. Yeah. That might just be my... We'll talk about codepens- codependency at a later episode. Beautiful. Can't wait. <laughs> so after the wedding and honeymoon of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, they released 14 prints depicting images from their honeymoon. So these are like film photographs. Mm-hmm. Eight of which were deemed inappropriate. Oh, little, little some, some. Mm-hmm. Within the scandal of all of that, he decides that he's going to go make music with Yoko instead of the Beatles. So John Lennon left the Beatles in September 1969. John created a solo album, which was said to be some of the best work he ever did. And now we're going to skip from 1969 to 1980. Okay. So he's like... 69, he would have been, he was born in 1940, so 29 years old, to now he's almost 40. Almost 40. So during the past decade, Yoko had given birth to his son, and John had received U.S. citizenship, and the family was living in New York City. Welcome. Welcome. Have a good time. New York is dirty, perfect, beautiful this time of year. Isn't that what they always say about New York? It's beautiful this time of year. It's true. It's like 90 degrees outside, and they're like, it's, it's hot, but... <laughs> but go see Central Park. Right. Go, go. 
Neither of us can do a New York accent. No, BT dubs. We just failed at that. That's okay. Charisma. <laughs> so on December 8th, 1980, John and Yoko did a photo shoot for the Rolling Stone magazine at their apartment just outside of Central Park. They did an interview with San Francisco DJ Dave Shalion and then left the apartment after 5 p.m. to head to the Hit Factory, which is a recording studio. Mm-hmm. As they left the building, they walked past a ton of people. Just like, as you can imagine, people are just like hanging out in front of the uh, place where they live just to get a glimpse of one or both of them. Yeah. One fan handed John Lennon a copy of his new album, um, and he signed it and returned it. And the fan's name was Mark David Chapman. Uh-oh. When you got three names. When you got three when names. When you got three names. We know what's coming. You know it. I also didn't know that this is what was coming. It's happening. So Mark Chapman was born in Texas. Mark what Chapman? David. Mark David Chapman. Mark David Chapman was born in Texas, but he lived in Hawaii, which sounds pretty desirable. And peaceful. Except that it's... I know. You know. I know. Okay. he was 25 years old in 1980 and was married to a woman named gloria so like fairly normal okay what mark david chapman do next so mark was a fan of the beatles as a teenager but after becoming a quote born-again christian he became enraged in 1966 when the beatles said that they were more popular than jesus i knew it would come back i called it you called it it's like a loop happening so his anger towards john lennon intensified once john started to appear in the media again in 1980 chapman couldn't digest the fact that the man who had preached all you need is love was now living as a millionaire in new york city i also can't believe we haven't referenced that song yet yeah that's true okay continue Chapman traveled to New York City in October of 1980 with the intention of murdering John Lennon. But something changed his mind, and he returned to Hawaii. So he bought a plane ticket, was like, I'm going to go kill a man, and then he decided not to. He decided not to. That's not a cheap or short trip. No, you have multiple layovers. Right. At least two. Oh, from New York? Yeah. To Hawaii? Oh, yeah. Maybe three layovers. Maybe, depending on the price of the ticket. Unclear (laughs) at this time. It's so interesting. He went with the intention and then went back and then decided... Anyway, we're skipping ahead. But then he decided to return on December 6th, 1980. And this time, he brought a thirty-four caliber revolver. So the first time he was planning to kill John Lennon. He brought nothing. He brought nothing. He Second not time, bring... he was like, okay, this time we're serious. Right. I don't know what he was planning. For real sk- He might have been scoping it out, though, honestly. Uh, I guess. I like to think that he was like, well, uh, let me just spend an extra three grand to I fly know, back and right? forth one more time. Lord. So Chapman left his belongings at a hotel together with a copy of the book by the American author J.D. Salinger, which is called The Catcher in the Rye. I'm familiar. The main character in The Catcher in the Rye, his name is Holden. Um, 
in that book, he kind of calls out the, like, quote, phonies. Mm -hmm. So they think that maybe he was, there was some correlation between the main character and the book. Um, But the book was kind of like a catch-all for the Island of Misfit Toys situation. So he might have felt kind of drawn to that novel. Yeah. Quote, for most of Monday, the 8th of December, Mark Chapman joined the group of the Beatles obsessives hanging around outside the Dakota building, waiting for a glimpse of their hero. He missed Lennon arriving at the apartment early in the morning, but had the chance later to see John Lennon's son, Sean, turn up with his nanny. When Lennon signed Chapman's album, as he was leaving the building that evening, the assassin was caught up in the excitement of meeting the Beatle. But later in the evening, his mood had changed. At about 10.50 p.m. that night, John Lennon and Yoko Ono returned to the Dakota in their limousine after a successful session mixing Walking on Thin Ice, which I've never actually heard, to be fair. I don't think I have either. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Uh, John considered the, re- the record to be Yoko's best chance yet at a chart hit. Mm. I can only imagine, like, being married to John Lennon, like, also, like, wanting to do your own thing, but then you're, like, John Lennon's wife, and uh, It's got to be hard. Yeah. And also, they think you broke up the Beatles. Yeah, I would recommend maybe doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and not trying to tack it on to John Lennon. Because sure. that just seems like a recipe for disaster. Sure. So the couple walked across the pavement and through the archway that led into the building's entrance. As Lennon walked by, Mark Chapman fired five bullets from his revolver into Lennon's back. Into his back. I was just thinking he fired three warning shots. Oh, jeez. Into his head. Back. Back. Five and back. Five and back. Not three and head. Got it. (laughs) Oh. And not warning shots. No, like actual In either situation, honestly. That's true. The bullets were hollow point, meaning they exploded into shrapnel once they hit their target. Oof. Ugh. As John Lennon stumbled into the entrance of the Dakota, Dorman Jose Perdoma heard the commotion that, and dashed to help. New York police officers quickly arrived on the scene. Some of them, Officer James Moran, Moran? Like, poor guy. M-O-R-A-N. Moran. Moran? Yep. I had a professor at UNCG whose last name was Moran. Moran? Okay. Yep. That's, okay. James Moran tried to get a response from the fallen figure asking, quote, are you John Lennon? Lennon reportedly responded, yes. I I mean, yes. Yes, I am. Yep. It's a fact. Chapman, meanwhile, had removed his coat and stood under a lamp where he was found by Dorman Jose Perdoma, reading the catcher and the rye so he had a copy in oh, his hotel room that is a good question and a copy on him i had read that he had left it in the hotel room but then i have it here in my notes it's unclear oh i kind of like the mystery of maybe he had two copies like maybe he Who wanted two police... copies of the same book i mean me but and i go by two names Your destiny. Um, I'm a pacifist, so are you though? 
I mean, I struggle killing anything. That's true. Let's watch out for you. (laughs) Probably for the best. TBH. John Lennon was no longer breathing when he arrived at the Roosevelt Hospital 10 minutes later, and he had no pulse. Medics battled for nearly 20 minutes to resuscitate him, but the bullets had shredded his body, and the beetle died in the emergency room. The coroner report said that Lennon had lost more than 80% of his blood supply. And like, oh. Ugh. So the fact that he had, first of all, brought a gun mm-hmm. and used those particular types of bullets mm-hmm. was very intentional. Yeah. Um, he obviously went to end this man's life. Yeah. So Mark Chapman was later diagnosed at the time with paranoid psychophrenia. So okay. We don't, might not know what that is now. Yeah, the DSM has changed since then, mm-hmm. so it's unclear, to me at least, yeah. what some of those diagnoses may have been. But he was sentenced to 20 years in jail. And in 2020, Chapman was up for parole for the 11th time. And he was turned down, luckily. In 2020? In 2020. Uh-huh. And his next parole, uh, or his next opportunity for parole is in 2022. Okay. So we don't have to worry about this for another, like, year. Yeah, but that's... Time flies. Time flies. But you think about, like... And we've talked about this before. The effect that music has on people. Mm -hmm. So this event was traumatic, not only for Yoko, who was there physically. Right. Not only the fans that were physically there, but, you know, the breaking up of the Beatles in general was really traumatic for a lot of people. Yeah. And then you have to think about years later, you know, one of your your icons, one of the the people that walks on water to you is murdered. Like, it's very strange. Honestly, I did not appreciate the Beatles until later. Like, I didn't really get into the Beatles until maybe, like, the past five or ten years. Mm-hmm. So I didn't actually know that he was murdered. Yeah. Um. So I'm, like, processing all of that. But you're right. Like, the Beatles were such an iconic group for so many. Mm-hmm. Um, and John Lennon especially seems to have a really interesting backstory with yeah. his own, like, share of trauma yeah. and um, tragedy. Yeah. Have you seen Across the Universe? Um, I have seen pieces of it. Admittedly, I've not seen the whole thing. It's very good. For a musical, you would really love it. That was like the first time as an adult or like as a millennial, I guess, experiencing the the music of the Beatles. I'll have to check it out. I know I attempted to watch it a couple of times and and I was never like in a place where i was super ready to watch it so i kept falling asleep so mm-hmm. i think i just need to like actually commit and sit down and watch it but it's i like, wasn't into the beatles when it came out so yeah. i wasn't like thrilled to watch it versus it is now very good. where i'm much more interested i don't actually know a whole lot about like the band itself mm-hmm. i know that you mentioned earlier that ringo wrote uh yellow submarine yeah but do you know anything more about, like, the origin story of the band or, like, 
any more of that backstory because I think that it's interesting. I just don't know a lot about it. Yeah. So it's they. So the relationships within the band, I think, are complex, and I think that's kind of what makes the breakup of the band like so dynamic. Is that they all got together when they were super young. Yeah. And then they kind of shot to stardom. But you can see such an evolution in their music. They go through, you know, the very clean cut kind of pop music phase. And then yeah. they very much do get into LSD and kind of this drug alternative uh, like brain music. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they were so trend setting in everything that they did because people really... Um, saw value in their new thoughts and ideas. Right. So, you know, you experience a generation that's growing up with the Beatles mm-hmm. and that is maintaining, you know, stardom throughout, you know, years of their lives. So that's why people were so connected to them because they were the biggest pop stars to have ever done anything. And people were able to like grow within their own personal experiences and the music that's really fascinating and i hadn't considered it in that way um but you're right like and i of course don't know like when any of the songs came out or the order of the songs but um imagine it's Mm -hmm. such a different feeling than lucy in the sky with diamonds or yellow submarine um or even strawberry fields like they all just have such a different distinct feeling Mm -hmm. And it does feel like they're kind of going through the stages of growing up and finding their voices and figuring out who they are as individuals and within this group. Mm-hmm. And like what politically is happening in the world at the time. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I heard this really cool thing and I have not researched it. So we might want to research it. But about Blackbird, which is my favorite Beatles song. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, But apparently, Blackbird was actually written about the American Civil Rights Movement. Hmm. So, um, bird in the UK at that time may have been another, like, word for woman. So, it was like, black woman, you know, escaping and finding her wings and, like, overcoming. Um, I'll have to see if I can find that. It was a TikTok. I'm going to see if I can find that TikTok (laughs) again and send it to you. Because it was really powerful. And again, if it's true, that's fascinating to me is that it was such a political commentary. It's also a beautiful commentary on the human experience. Mm -hmm. And they were very like involved with like the Vietnam War in Vietnam and and, um, just very... uh, at the forefront of of, uh, all of their beliefs yeah all of them were out there and i think that was also really refreshing as a consumer to to see such transparency and um you know that's how they automatically had that credibility is because they were late relating to people on like such a personal level yeah yeah and they did a great job with it i mean the beatles songs have stood the test of time in so many ways and they still relate to younger people Mm -hmm. even if they're not played on the radio anymore like you hear some of these songs and they connect with a piece of you there will always be a new generation like discovering the beatles music oh i think agreed yeah and it also helps (laughs) that like every time you like go into a target in the men's section there's like you know a beatles shirt (laughs) 
That's true. It also just occurred to me that the 1960s are to us what young kids now, like what the 90s are to young kids now. Oh my God, stop. Don't you love when uh, I put this in time, in the time-space continuum for you? But I think the 90s are like super great. I mean, I'm sure that... 30-year-olds thought that the 60s were super great in the 90s. That's a good point. I mean, the 60s were the 60s. Uh-huh. And I'm a big fan of a lot of the music that came out, but there was also a lot of shit going down in oh, the 60s. Oh, and then just across, like, all time. Shit never stops. Oh, that's fair. Can't stop. Won't <laughs> well, stop. Yeah. Unfortunately. As much as we wanted to stop. Oh. Such a good point. But I think his death was traumatic, Mm-hmm. for a lot of people and just like the nature in which he died it's it's just it's sad and such like ill will and intention behind him so in 66 he made these comments and then 14 years later he yeah. is like suffering those repercussions yeah and like how much of this man's life of chapman's life he was like internalizing that comment and obviously he had his own mental health stuff happening um but it's just it's it's wild i'm also concerned i mean there's a a certain radicalization that goes along with chapman and Mm -hmm. his you know feelings about the comments that were made but i think that there's a piece of this for me that sticks out as like victim blaming if we continue to say that it's because of um like this one comment he made 14 years ago and that's the reason that he's dead that might be the reason that chapman gave but like if sure. he had never made that comment would chapman have still you know killed somebody right john lennon or otherwise well, and that's a good question because when people become obsessed, yeah, it, it's very interesting, like who they hone. Oh, in absolutely, on, you know. But I mean, it it is sad, and you know, it's one of those those icons that again we've lost. And at this point, Paul McCartney is the only Beatle who's still alive. Oh, I know, and Aww. you know, just such a revolution that was built off of. Yeah, the, their music and their contribution to pop culture and culture in general. So, yeah. you know, maybe not a continuous series like my trauma response series that we're working on, but eventually you should cover the other Beatles. Maybe I like will. that would be a fun little series. Is yeah. the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles. But anyway, that is the story and the history of John Lennon. You did a great job. Thank you so much. I learned so much. So how do we think that these topics intersect? So I think that, I mean, what stands out to me is we know that John Lennon was shot in the back. Yeah. Which means that he didn't have the chance for his brain to be like, danger, Will Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, or, hey, Miss Robinson. Mm-hmm. But he... So, like, he didn't have the opportunity to have a fight, flight, or freeze response. Right, right. So there's, I mean, a link up. It's not quite as hefty as some of our previous intersections. Well, and I think, too, like, even though it wasn't a trauma response, I think it is important to note that Chapman left New York City and fleed, kind of, back to Hawaii originally. Yeah. Having visited the scene of the crime. 
Yeah. So he like checked it out and then went home and then came back. And then came back. Yeah. 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 Um, And who knows? Maybe part of that was like a trauma response. Maybe he scared something within himself and he was like, let me get away from this thing. Mm -hmm. But he did end up coming back. I don't know. Well, and in interviews with him, he states, you know, he got a, he, he was there that day. He got an autograph from John Lennon and the endorphins started going. Uh He felt a sense of glee and validation from that. Okay. And so there was no, you know, fight or flight response at that time, but he then decided to murder him after those happy chemicals went away so or in the height of those happy chemicals like in the height mm. of his adrenaline like euphoria moment is that when he decided yeah to kill john lennon and there were hours in between but those chemicals can last various amounts depending yeah if you're obsessed with somebody and they just autographed your yeah your album like how long does that high last i have no idea but you, I think, posed an interesting question earlier because we we talked about big trauma triggers and like causing people to flee, like you know, getting to the point where you almost kill somebody and then fleeing from that thought, or in the case of Elsa, like being faced with the fact that she might kill other people. She fled. Mm-hmm. Link up there. Link up. Um, but also, there's like this human response of the 18 wheelers that we talked about earlier like Mm -hmm. seeing a very real threat and your body deciding instantaneously to fight flee or or freeze Mm -hmm. and john lennon wasn't given that opportunity of course because his back was turned right but i wonder like because i i feel like there's got to be a piece of you that's like wait a second something's not quite right here yeah um, just before you're killed. Maybe well, not. But that's every scary movie I've ever seen. And we can think about the the responses of those people who were there on that day. Not necessarily oh, John, but yeah, yeah. the security guard who rushed to John Lennon's side. Um, For nobody, sure. Nobody chose the Hulk response in in response to Chapman himself because he was then found alone. Well, the security guard is the same person who found John Lennon and Chapman, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that is part of a, a fight response. So he, yeah, he, he visited both parties, but the guy was just found like alone reading a book. Yeah. So it's so creepy. Yeah, it's that so is fucking super creepy. creepy. Yeah. I also would be interested to learn more about John Lennon because now we know a little bit more about his early childhood trauma, mm-hmm. abandonment. You know, um, his mom died early. Like, how did that impact his music? How did that impact him socially? How did that impact his marriage? Like, there are so many questions to figure out how his trauma brain kind of developed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even Yoko's response in that moment, too, because you're experiencing trauma around you um, as well. Yeah. And your partner has just been injured and... Um, you know, there's just so much happening. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, shitty situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really unfortunate. Yeah. I also would love a study on how many assassins use all three names. So if you could add that to your list. So that's something that the news does. 
Ah. They implement that because other th- otherwise there that would be... That makes so much more sense. I was like, are they? do they all do go they by all double just first names? Go by all three names? No, they go by their first, middle, and last name to like be able to identify those people because everybody has the same first and last name. That's true. Yeah. I know at least two Carrie Watkins. Do you? Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you're named after... Um, but yeah, so I just, I find it really interesting the way that the media spins these stories too. Oh yeah. And that might be a whole other issue, but how, you know, the media takes people who've experienced trauma and then spins the story in different ways and what pieces they tell versus what pieces they don't tell. Like there's a lot to unpack there. Very true. Very true. Thank you. Good intersections there, my friend. Yeah, high five. High five. That neither of us went to go actually do. We were just like, eh, spirit it's high five. It's a verbal high five. My <laughs> hands are exhausted. <laughs> it's been a long day. It has been a long day. Lord have mercy. It's a Thursday. Like, what are we even doing here? I don't know. We're going to bed soon is what we're doing here. <laughs> That's so true. Um, so just to reiterate, guys, we are back up on Patreon. No adult content needed. If you guys would love to support us, we would also love that too. A little reciprocation, a little reciprocity. I knew we wouldn't make it through it without some singing. There we go. Um, I was, I don't know why I'm in Chicago mode. Maybe it's the <laughs> the murders, but I'm like, um, if you'll, what's the Queen Latifah song? Um, if you're good to mama, mama's good to you. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. Yep, that's exactly right. It's a good life lesson there, folks. It is. Free so, of charge. <laughs> we are on patreon.com slash podcast without an audience. At a certain tier, you are able to pick a topic for us, and we've got some really fun topics coming up in the next couple weeks. Yes, sorry, my hand was raised. Um, are we... Patreon slash podcast without an audience or pod without an odd. We're podcast without an audience. Excellent. Good to know. Thank you. I think. Uh, I do declare. Double check. Really? No, not right now. I mean, on our Instagram. I mean, find us. We're find either. Us. We're there. It's one or the other. I'm for exhausted. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I it's really It's a Thursday. Am. It's a Thursday. It really is a Thursday. Um, so also, we're still doing... We've had some really cute and fun reviews lately. So all of those guys and gals and, and all in between... Non-binary pals. Oh, I love that. They Everybody got a sticker. Everybody Aww. got a sticker and magnet. So thank you guys so much for doing that. We are still on the sticker and magnet train. Um... But again, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting us. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaudd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.